The subject of this speech is a topic which has been discovered recently and which may not exist at all. I may be talking about something that does not exist. Therefore, I'm free to say everything and nothing. I, in my stories and novels, sometimes write about counterfeit worlds, semi-real worlds, as well as deranged private worlds inhabited often by just one person. At no time did I have a theoretical or conscious explanation for my preoccupation with these pluriform pseudo-worlds, but now I think I understand. What I was sensing was the manifold of partially actualized realities lying tangent to what evidently is the most actualized one, the one that the majority of us, by consensus gentium, agree upon. In other words, it's a common theme in my writing that a dark-haired girl show up at the door of the protagonist and tell him that the world is delusional, that there's something false about it. Well, this did finally happen to me. I even knew that her hair would be black. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Foles and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Sunday, October 9th, 2016 and this evening we'll decide if time is our only real currency. And we'll do so with writer-director-editor Jacob Gentry if he's willing to show us his flower. Mr. Gentry has directed six feature films, including such works as The Last Goodbye, The Signal, and most recently, Synchronicity, which he also wrote and which is currently streaming on Netflix. Gentry also directed several videos for the band Broken Bells. It really is an honor to have him here with us this evening on Debate Night. How are you doing, Jacob? Great, great. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. You bet. Thank you. Normally, the show tends to end with the synchronicity question, but in your case, let's just start there. I'm guessing that you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing you know what it is because you named your film after it. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I have a very sort of surface understanding of it, and as much as I'm not a union sort of synchronicity expert as as you and your uh, community of people are, but uh, you know, I I did find I did come across sort of information and understanding about it while I was trying to, while I was developing the story and writing the script. So, um, and it seemed to fit the sort of, there's a lot of the thematic elements of the, of the movie as well as sort of have a, um, I also am into like sort of the aesthetics of sounds of things and, the, you know, breaking the word apart and that sort of thing. If you imagine, you know, synchronize and has the word city, which is a very much a part of our movie. So, there's sort of like, you know, textual, subtextual, all kinds of reasons for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And just for for the a fun little, the sake of our listeners, you're part of a, a synchronicity that you, you know, it, I didn't even realize. And so the thing that we're doing right now, 42 Minutes, grew out of something, the sync book. And the sync book was a bunch of bloggers, um oh, I don't know, like 2008, 2009, a bunch of people got interested in synchronicity and we kind of all found each other via blogs. Right. And then out of the out of the blogging grew this idea, well, we're all writing essays, basically. What if we put together an anthology of our work, like an actual book? And uh, Alan, Alan, my um, friend, is the one who had the idea and decided to edit the book. But before we did any of that, there was a group blog. So we we're always kind of coalescing into groups. But there was a group of us that decided what would it be like to blog as a 
collaborative thing where you know everyone's editing each other and adding things so you know what kind of getting into sync with each other um but one of the comments so like there was a post and there there's this broken bells video that i really thought spoke to this idea of trying to be an artist and trying to get somewhere and not you know knowing that you wanted to get somewhere but then you know what it would really cost to get there and i shared that and uh alan and will alan the editor of the sync book and will my partner in 42 minutes we all that video really resonated with us what video do you think i'm talking about uh are you talking about the uh, broken bells video yeah um perhaps the the one with uh christine mar and the, the late oh the one with christina uh Hendrix. okay yeah, yeah. um yeah. the ghost inside yeah yeah Where, yeah yeah for taking literally yeah <laughs> yeah and so that that video is was so great because it felt like there's a narrative there and it matches the song but it isn't like a literal translation of the song necessarily sure how, how uh, tell us a little bit about that and how you ended up making a video for broken bells um well i the uh danger mouse uh, Brian, aka Brian Burton, um, and I have known each other since we were in college together, actually, um, at the University of Georgia. And we had talked about working together for a long time, and then this finally came up. I had an idea that was really interesting for a video, and he he had asked me to do a video for them, and it just kind of came together that way. Um, and uh, you know, I had this sort of idea about um, taking a sort of metaphor of it costs an arm and a leg very literally, but then also going back onto the metaphor with, by using science fiction. Um, and it just kind of grew out of that. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly how these things come together other than, you know, I've sort of pitched the idea of what I wanted to do with it and he really liked it. And, uh, James, um, uh, Mr. From the Shins uh-huh. also um, yeah. is the second half of Broken Bells. Um, he liked the idea as well, so we just kind of went from there. And I, you know, worked with them and uh, created the video. And it was one of the best experiences I've ever had because I got to do a lot of things that I wasn't able to do previously and probably will never get to do again, such as, you know, use a lot of uh, old school techniques, a lot of, you know, in terms of getting to use you know, models. I wanted to do models instead of computer generated. <laughs> so I took that as an opportunity because I, I wanted to kind of give the vintage feel in the same way that their music does, but at the same time, it's like future music with a vintage feel. So I tried to, you know, on the aesthetic level, try to do that in the video. But then, you know, our Christina Aguilera, or <laughs> Christina Aguilera, sorry, Christina Hendricks was our first choice. Christina Aguilera was really our first choice, but she had her own music career. So, no. How did you get um, Christina Hendricks? Because was it, I mean, she really became a huge star because of Mad Men, but I don't know how far along Mad Men was at that time. Um, it's funny enough, um, speaking of synchronicity, um, her manager was um, a fan of my work and had tried to and was really interested in this other script that I had and convinced her to do it. And then I went and met with her. And obviously the band is very legitimized, you know, um, being Grammy Award winners and what have you. So there was a sort of backing me up. There was this sort of, you know, um, 
Yeah, I and mean, uh, I met with her and talked about the idea for the the piece, and and it was it just went from there. Um, yeah, it, it was a really cool experience. I mean, you know, having a sort of it was a small video in budget wise, but you know, being able to to um, to do it, I try to make things look you know more expansive and bigger than they are, and I just kind of I had a lot of visual. Uh, preparation for it, and I'd sort of exp- I sort of I, I basically had a feature film's worth of, of stuff that we could explore, and I think that hopefully they responded to that. Yeah, um, and I made a mix. I made her a mix CD, basically, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of of music that inspired it, and that um, not just inspired, but also sort of. Are, are you? I mean, do you ever have this thing where you have like sort of a retroactive inspiration, meaning like music that especially with music in the sense that like you feel like it didn't necessarily inspire it before, but it inspired it after the fact, if that makes any sense. I don't, I don't know how to explain it other than that, but it's just kind of this uh, past and present of, of, of influence and inspiration and just sort of muse following. I don't know how to explain it, but. Um, huh. So yeah. not like causality. It's more like, retroactively this song really is syncing or resonating with this this thing or an idea yeah yeah just sort of or just music you hear after you come up with an idea and realize how powerful the zeitgeist is i don't know okay but that's the word of the moment you might be you might be because in some in some uh, way you're kind of like the leading edge of this time travel zeitgeist that is like exploded right now like sure this weekend is like time travel weekend it seems like so npr has got time travel shows and uh, there's all these time travel shows on broadcast tv what is up with you know why is this why now do you have any sense of that i mean it's really tough to to understand the zeitgeist when you're a filmmaker because between idea the conception of an idea and between execution and then and then the eventual distribution of something is such a long period of time. So it's really hard to sort of pinpoint exactly whether you're ahead or behind the zeitgeist because to, to the receiver of this, you know, some of this stuff, it feels like you may be on the zeitgeist or behind it or ahead of it. But ultimately, you know, it might've, it might've been something that was, sort of in the zeitgeist when I first conceived of the idea and then went out <laughs> and then was kind of fell out of the zeitgeist and then fell back in, in a sort of great way, right as the, you know, a sort of movie was sort of being unleashed into the world. So um, that's just always an interesting thing to me. I, yeah. Zeitgeist is a really, is a really compelling thing because um you know, you as an artist, you know, you just go back to the old like Armageddon Deep Impact idea. Right. Or the ants, the two yeah. ant movies at the same time. And you're like, no, they're just, you know, they're copying each other. But they're not. There's this moment where things are resonating and I don't, I, you know, it's just synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I, I think that there is an interest in the past in more than just a time travel way. I think in terms of pop culture, I think because we've kind of reached this point where everything is, we have everything. So there's not like, you know, it's like if you were asked to define the, whatever you call this decade, right. Or whatever you call the decade previous to this, like the aughts or something. Right. It was much easier to sort of pinpoint in a retroactive way 
what the what the sort of you know surface level um, uh, characteristics of the '70s or the '80s or the '60s or even the '90s. Um, now I feel like we're in an age when you can't really sort of pinpoint exactly what those things are because we're so interested in the past and the future at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, some of the most popular entertainment is stuff that is playing upon nostalgia or you know, eliciting something uh, or feelings we had when we watched something when we were younger. So maybe that has something to do with time travel. Um, and also, I think that as we get as as we get further along in science fiction in terms of technology catching up with the the movies and literature and you know all the sort of science fiction, as we start to catch up with that, as you know, Back to the Future Two becomes more of a reality or something like that. You know, as <laughs> as these sort of like prescient documents become like, you know, reportage seemingly it's that, you know, you start time travel is still something that's so foreign and yet familiar because I think that because we're so obsessed with time, but yet I don't feel like we even have even scratched the surface of really truly understanding what it is because obviously it's subjective and then you have physics reasons for, you know, explanations for time, but time and space and, the relativism of that, I don't, it's just all of those things. I mean, you know, 42 minutes doesn't cut. We wouldn't have time to talk about time really or <laughs> necessarily or time travel. Cause I mean, I think that time travel in movies right now is essentially nonsense because it's, it's probable by the laws of, or it's possible by the laws of physics, but it's highly improbable. Right. So, um, there's another zeitgeist too, though, that your movie also winks at, which is interesting. And so before I get into that, do you are you able to see the Netflix views? Do you have any kind of feedback on that? Because I'm wondering if no, I think if, if you know, Netflix is very much like um, they're not very you know they're it's sort of a uh, known thing that they're not transparent with num you know the sort of metrics on all yeah, this stuff. Yeah. Um, so you can't, and it's even impossible now because everything on everything internet wise is so tailored to you specifically. Like before, you know, I, you know, looking up, uh, if you type in the word synchronicity into Google, you know, the, on my, when I type that in, the first two things that come up on the sidebar thing are, you know, Carl Jung and the, my movie. <laughs> so that's why I got really nervous. Like I'm going to show up by the way. Uh, but I was like, no, I'm not a representing i'm not an authority, <laughs> I'm, not an authority um, I'm not an authority but at the same time i don't know if that is just particular to me or not you know what i mean because so much of what netflix does is, is it, it it hones in on exactly what you're watching and what you're you know what your interests are so it's really interesting to try to figure out what the what the world is but i i, I may have kind of digressed too much i'm sorry huh no i get the same things as you so yeah yeah I mean, I don't know what the metrics are on it, and I, I don't know what, uh, you know, the popularity of it. I just know that uh, ever since it went to Netflix, uh, I did I have had a lot more interactions with people who have seen it, um, whether it's online or in, in uh, my personal life. So, I'm just yeah. curious. I hope that somehow you can take advantage of the moment. Like You can't actively necessarily do anything, but it, sometimes moments happen and things are situated in such a way where they can – they can just naturally take a boost off. We had a friend who made this video about uh, Back to the Future predicting 9/11. <laughs> right. Okay. And but it became a meme for a week because of Back to the Future Day. You know, it's like 
he I don't think he planned that necessarily, but it just happened that like sure. he had so many views because of this. Everyone was interested in Back to the Future, and then oh my gosh, look at this thing! This is the weirdest thing we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so they, I mean, it was it was really an interesting moment. But um, what I was what I was hinting at is uh, a lot of physicists and technologists are now saying, well, you know, we might very well be in a computer simulation that none of this is real. Right. Yeah. And so this, Elon Musk is the best at Elon Musk. I feel like is the best at sort of, you know, articulating that in a in a digestible way for us lay people. Well, um, so if you haven't, do you read Philip K. Dick? Uh, I mean, I'm a fan of Philip K. Dick. Yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm by no means an expert, or as as I've listened to a couple of your um, podcasts, which are great, by the way. I just um, it's a fantastic and really enjoyable. Um, uh, but I, I, I started to hear that, oh, wow, Philip K. Dick was actually a, a very um, sort of influential part of all of the guests that you've had, or, seen, or, seen, or at least the, the ones I've listened to. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm a fan, and I think, it, yeah, he was highly influential, of course, in, in, in synchronicity, and especially when you're working in a science fiction genre or anything that has to do with reality or perception or those sorts of things. Um, he gave a speech in 1977 where he kind of, like, the idea of the Matrix, he kind of, like, said, you know, this could be happening, and everyone thought he was totally nuts. And now right, this, yeah. this, this is what Musk is saying, that, you know, this this might be happening. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, he, and Musk being a sort of scientist, he can make it into logic terms and into mathematical terms in terms right. of the probability of something um, down to the billionth, you know, and that is definitely what uh, separates, you know, the, sort of, uh, the, the people, the philosophers like Philip K. Dick and the scientists like um, Elon Musk. And I don't know if he would qualify in, or self, self, you know, name himself a, a scientist, but I definitely think he's leading, you know, sure. a lot of, a lot of areas of science for sure. But yeah, I mean, um, I mean, and just in terms of science fiction, I mean, yeah, I mean, Philip K. Dick in terms of reality, in terms of in terms of understanding that, and you know, I mean, obviously the most sort of idiomatic quote that he has is is the reality is, you know, that which when you don't believe in it still exists or something. I, I may be mangling that to death, but um, um, and I, you know, and and I I like that. I like to sort of to sort of think about those things in terms of when you're talking about parallel universes, you're talking about time travel. Um, you know, what is time even, you know, and I think that his sort of dialectical thought puzzles are what makes him the most interesting um, in a lot of ways for me. Yeah, for sure. So I want to talk about both the surface of your film and the substance, but so I'm curious, I mean, like from a filmmaking standpoint, when you're are do the when you're doing something like in a noir flavor and time travel do some of these things just naturally arise like archetypes so like the idea of the girl like this dark-haired kind of girl is that just something that that just arises or is something that do you think that there's a lot of intention behind some of this stuff I, well, with filmmaking, I kind of I kind of err on the side that everything is intentional um, because it just it's just such it just takes so much 
unconscious so intentional work. or just it's pre-planned because of what really is going on as far as execution goes with both money and time and all the people involved? Well, I think when you're talking about archetypes, of course, you know, in terms of storytelling, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, you know, using archetypes in a way, you know, and I, I think that that was definitely intentional in terms of the, the noir aspect, because I really wanted to, you know, apply these uh, uh, archetypes to something, these tropes, if you will, the noir tropes to a a story that maybe on the surface did not seem like it was appropriate. It's not a crime story, which they, they usually are, but a lot of noir stories are usually detective stories. And I think that, um, you know, part of being a scientist is being a cosmic detective, but he's also trying to uncover what he believes is a mystery. But then, because I wanted the movie to sort of feel like a palindrome in the sense that you could fold it on top of itself, uh -huh. you know, um, or at least initially, I think I, you know, in the editing process uh, maneuvered that a little bit, but um, I wanted to, you know, have these sort of archetypes and then upend them in some way or to, you know, and he's, his view of the world, the main character's view of the world being seeing through the lens of these archetypes, he believes that he's in some sort of noirish mystery. And then the reality, once he's able to get a parallax view of his own timeline or his own reality, he ultimately discovers that, you know, those, those uh, archetypes and tropes are just, are simply that they're just you know, something that is very reductive and not necessarily the case. And I think that was kind of the fun of the movie. So, yeah, that was definitely intentional. Um, but something like the... the is that what you mean? Uh, like, I, yes. And also moving towards something like the time travel journal. You know, so it seems like sure. there's always a... In a time travel story, there's always this book. But it also harkens back to, like, this idea of Gnosticism where everyone's asleep and that you need the the enlightened text that's going to illuminate, you know, and wake the protagonist up from the dream kind of thing, you know. So uh, that their their existence is fictional on some level, and that if with the right messaging, they might be able to, you know, find the real reality. I guess. Sure. Yeah. Which is interesting in in a circular love story. Well, it's kind of the idea of the, the text that writes itself. Do you know what I mean? Um, in the sense of the never-ending story or something like that, to take a, a, a sort of popular example. Um, yeah. In the sense that what she is writing in in the movie, um, for those who haven't seen it, I, she the main... Uh, Abby. Female lead, yeah, Abby, the main character. One of the main characters is writing a, um, a book about the main character. <laughs> and... Um, and that is sort of how, you know, the, the, the ways that that translates over the course of, of different um, parallel universes is, is something that was really intriguing to me. Um, and then, you know, is she writing the story or is, is she right? Is she reporting a story that she's seeing happen or is she writing something and then that story is um, sort of fulfilling itself? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yes. And so I, I would say this is the movie that, it's somewhat open-ended at the end. I mean, so it's definitely open to interpretation. Do, would you agree with sure. that? Or would you think that you have a definite ending in mind? Well, I have intentions. I have intentions for the whole thing, but I also, as a, as a 
movie lover and movie and as a cinephile and as just a fan of movies, I always like it when my imagination gets to fill in a lot of the space with my own thoughts and ideas. And I think that some of the most interesting things that I've heard about this movie have come from people and, um, you know, seeing it for the first time and, and having their sort of theory about what is actually going on. And sometimes it's way more interesting than the intention. Um, but there is always an intention, but I, you know, I'd like to, you know, make the movie so that I can, you know, give you just enough of what the intention is or just, or just little, little uh, beats of the intention so that your imagination can run with it. Cause you're going to be able to tell the story in your imagination and your mind way better than I could. Does that make sense? Like horror movies or science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, David Lynch is notorious for not telling you what's going on. Right. Exactly. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to believe that every detail in a Lynch film is completely composed. Like there's a reason for everything. It's not because it looked cool. It might be the case, but you know, like that with David Lynch, you know, the possibility of something being meaningful and completely intentional to illuminate further details is, is cause he was a visual artist for sure. But at the same time, he's not going to tell you. He'd rather have the audience interpret it however they interpret it. Sure. And in, instead of saying, this is the meaning of the art, it's whatever you make of it is the meaning of the art. And so I think... Well, that was, that was kind of the other thing that Philip K. Dick was talking about, which was the collaboration between the, the reader and the, and the writer in terms of that, that collaboration of dream, of, of, of discerning meaning. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. um, that, that the, the writer, the writer's sort of job is to elicit the, the meaning or elicit, conjure up the, the images and, and ideas that would elicit that kind of meaning into the, the reader. And then therefore they can, you know, that journey is what, what it's for. And I think that, you know, movies are essential. And why, one of the reasons why David Lynch is one of the great film artists is that, you know, movies are essentially like dreams in a sense. Um, and they should function that way, I believe. Um, and that um, I don't always think that metaphor should be, have a one-to-one -one correlative, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah. that that's what's beautiful about his stuff. And I think that, I think he has an intention, but I think he's also, I think it's also a channeling of something that you don't necessarily, it, it comes from your imagination and your imagination isn't, isn't a process with which you manufacture things and dissect them before they sort of are explored in your, in your work. It, that's um, the original meaning of genius too, that there's something that sweeps, it's not contained in your being, it's you're opening yourself up to something larger than yourself to let out yeah i always like it when they talk when they when they talk about giger and how he just had this portal to this world because his his work was so consistent in this very elaborate universe that he was creating through his art that just the idea that he was he just had a access to you know it's like the closet and being gone off of it or something he just had a access into this other <laughs> dimension with which he could conjure up these images um and he was just the vessel he was just the, the hand with the paintbrush in it yeah yeah there was also 
speaking about uh, the collaboration between the the artist and the audience, the there's the great line in Twelve Monkeys, which is also kind of a time travel movie, where Bruce Willis says, "You know, the movie never changes. It can't. It's just the people. You know, it's like every time that you see it, it's a little different because you've changed." Absolutely. Yeah. But so and that loops back. That loops back, and you're talking about a movie that's time travel. I think that loops back to time travel in the sense that. The movie doesn't change, and it is, but it is a duration of time that you're experiencing this thing. And you can go back to a certain point in it. You can rewind. You can fast forward. You can go all through it. Um, and, and especially like when you're creating a movie, you're, you're very much understanding things on a timeline that yet doesn't exist, and you're bouncing around in that timeline. You know, you're shooting things that ha- that occur later in the story, and then shooting something that happened before that afterwards. And so in just understanding time and space that way, and I think that, and, and that, and that's another great thing about, um, I think that may be another reason why time travel as a metaphor for something in a, in a story is really something that we all connect to. And maybe, maybe perhaps is in the zeitgeist is because we, you know, as we move through this life, we approach you know, uh, the, some of the movies that I loved as a kid, I, I, I'm maybe bored with now. And some movies that I, I, I thought were, I didn't really connect with or didn't, didn't like, I, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've come to appreciate. And then even more just movies that I did love and then, and then ultimately get some new meaning out of them. Like someone like Kubrick, that's, I think that's sort of his enduring impact is that his movies are, are those with which you can, you can continually return to and always get some kind of other thing out of it. Um, especially a movie like 2001, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of density in Kubrick's films. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, so we, we're talking about like uh, 12 Monkeys and the, the movie's not changing. A movie like uh, Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind, which is kind of in that vein, where it, there's a there's a scientific technique that causes you know, Joel's memory to erase, but it ends. I th- I don't know if the audience realizes how bleak it is. Cause at the very end, it shows them spinning around in the snow over and over again. And in the script, apparently it was supposed to do it for a really long time to just show how fruitless this, this endeavor really was. But it seems like this, this is the thing that's worth writing about because you know, it, this, we were talking about the surface of your film with the, the technology and and you know the the noir and this stuff but the substance is this this love story you know what is driving the scientist and 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 so you know what is it about that and you know like i found a book called melville and love which posits that herman melville wrote Moby Dick because of this undying love he had for a mistress. Wow. Um, I think that for me, it was, I mean, this is just my intention, but I don't want to by any means, like, you know, just sort of discredit anyone's um, sort of take on the movie. But I, you know, I sort of saw it as the potential for a relationship. You know, it was, it was a movie more about the, beginnings of something and whether that could exist, you know, what would the future of that be? And I think that, you know, I don't really think we even get to see the actual love relationship in the movie, because I think it's, it's all about the sort of quandary of whether or not it will actually happen. Um, and that could it happen and that if in another 
timeline would that would it would it be possible if not this one and then also just the simple like uh, sort of basic base human emotions like jealousy and um paranoia that come from when you first uh, sort of are interested in someone but then cannot uh, necessarily you don't necessarily trust them yet because you don't know there's there's still so many mysteries and that's what's sort of attractive and seductive but at the same time it's it can cause great sort of anxiety, you know. Um, I think a lot of it's that scary feeling that makes you excited when you first start to um, get in a relationship with someone. And I think that, um, yeah, and I think that, you know, and also just a scientist trying to solve uh, emotional problems with logic, you know. Um, once again, sort of going back to the idea of synchronicity is that, you know, that's, there's sort of uh, conflicting ideas between actual physics being only provable things <laughs> and, and causality being something that's very important to all effect as opposed to synchronicity, which, you know, things that aren't causally related have a meaningful connection. So I think that, that and I think that that's in a relationship and, and um, I don't know, I, I think that we all have those. And I think that to sort of leave them out of movies sometimes can feel like a little dishonest, but not all stories should contain that. But um, I don't know. You, what, so they posited, wait, explain this more. So they posited that, that Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick because he was in, or as a ode to his mistress. Yeah. She was Moby Dick. <laughs> no, I mean, so the, he moved his family from New York to this to the Berkshires to be near this this lady. And he moved his so they say no he you know before the historians were saying he moved to be near Nathaniel Hawthorne but he moved right next door to this this lady and he started building a deck to kind of look at her house I guess but then there's this mountain out there that it's called like Greylock Mountain and it's big and in the winter it'd be white and so he, his his mistress was married to a rich guy in New York and she went to England for the winter and that's when he wrote Moby Dick and it's all about obsession and he's trying to d break convention the conventions of you know being married and what that entails and then also um you know, just because Ahab was so driven by obsession, you know, mm -hmm. and he was trying to figure out why he was so obsessed, I guess. It's just fascinating. Oh, yeah, the obsession is obsession is definitely a part of that, for sure, in terms of the driving force of, of, of what I think is interesting about, you know, active protagonists and, and stories and, and um, is there really a, a difference, but, you know, is curiosity just the beginning of, the, of obsession? Well, so know? like towards the end of the movie, after it's like the, I, the third jump that we see, or, you know, we're not really sure what's going on because uh, Maddie turned the dial right instead of left. And then when uh, Jim runs out in his suit, I, I don't know if that's a spoiler or not. I don't think so. I think we haven't spoiled anything. Um, Chuck says, still chasing her, huh? Do you think that's a spoiler? I don't know. Um, but anyway... I, I mean, at this point, I'm so familiar with the movie. I, I don't... I mean, and... Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think that there's a few things that may be spoilers, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but you were saying? <laughs> it's just, you know, Chuck is like, you're still chasing her, huh? It's it's, it's We've been... We've been there before, because 
many of those scenes are really similar, and so you're setting up, you know, this these things that begin, to, you know, you become comfortable with it. It's like time where we, you know, the year spins in a circle, and then you get back to where you started, and then Facebook is funny because it reminds you, oh, yeah, I, I did these same things a year ago. Sure, yeah. But now I'm a little, you, you know. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I mean, you, there, are, there are, of course, you know, sort of philosophical and metaphorical implications and all of that. But at the same time, it's also just the, the root emotion of, or the root idea that someone would be proclaiming to do something in the name of, in the name of science or in the name of, of, you know, sort of discovering uh, what opening a traversable wormhole in the space time continuum would actually, what the implications of that are. But, you know, you sort of find out some of the motivations may in fact be very, very human and very personal and very simple, such as just, Oh, you're not actually. And I think that that he didn't even, I, I you know, and, people can watch the movie and make up their own minds. But I think that a lot of the idea was that, you know, um, he was, he was, he thought he was doing something for different reasons, but his subconscious emotion, emotional life was sort of driving him more than he realized. Um, you know, and that same sort of, I sort of classic story idea or something like the social network where, you know, the movie sort of, argues that he did all of this. He created Facebook because a, a girl was, a girl broke up with him. Do you know what I mean? Um, and he would never admit that he, that's the reason he did it. And that's always interesting because that, that, that implies like a subtextual reading of, of a character's inner life that, that makes it always interesting. Um, and I think that we all have like very, very base emotions for the reasons we do stuff, but we don't, aren't necessarily always connected to them. And that's what's so interesting about the dreams is because the dream when we have these dreams that they're it's all of those subconscious emotions come made into pure imagery that don't, that doesn't necessarily make sense in the same way that some um, movies do. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I definitely, I definitely see a, um, an idea that there are a multitude of reasons why you do things. And I think that, you know, there's the, the greater reasons and then there's the, the the sort of base human motivation, that obsession. I think you were talking about obsession, right? And I think that that has a lot to do with it too. So, well, you were also talking about logic. You know, the difference between coming at things with logic and uh, and emotion. Um, but mm -hmm. I love Maddie in that respect because he's so brilliant, but at the same time, he he seems like such so clueless. And right. Do you have you known anyone like that? I think it, I mean I think the most of the really genuinely brilliant people I've met can sometimes falter on the on the simplest things, you know. And the whole idea with him is he's definitely on the spectrum, and he um, can articulate or he can solve the most complex math problems known to man, but he can't tell left from right. And I think we all have a little bit of that to varying degrees, whether we're, I think, whether we're, you know, genius or not. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just, I, 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 I've always liked that idea because I think that some of the smartest people I've known are kind of um, wrecks when it comes to basic things, uh, <laughs> like uh, mailing a letter or something, you know? Yeah. Well, so 
I, I wonder, I mean, I think people would say that this is a pretty smart film. I'm good. <laughs> but I hope so. I mean, that'd be great. I would, I would, I would like that. I mean, hopefully they just, they, you know, they like it, but yeah, a smart film would be good. Yeah. Um, no, but not it, too smart because that that's would the be problem. Cause if it's, well, so like when you're making art, you, you wonder how, how accessible something really is. I mean, so everyone involved is really intimate with it, but at the same time, you know, when you put something out there, you you just don't have any idea how people will respond to it. Right. There is no sort of a monolith of response of a singular response. You know, there is there's no pure, un, like simple understanding, and that's what's frustrating and amazing about doing this kind of thing is that there is a million unique, you know, millions or ho- I mean, hopefully if there's that million, many people, but ultimately all of the responses are unique um, to that person's subjective experience with it. Well, when we started talking, I was, I was bringing up the idea of archetypes for a reason, because when I, when I first watched it, it was, it just showed up, you know, I was doing a search and here's, you know, it's got such an intriguing title, Mike. And then the, the poster art is really good. Right. So there's some really, really striking visual elements that you do in the film with the uh, anytime he gets his headache, you know, or the, when the wormhole opens, it's just great. You know, like beautiful um, analog. That's all analog um, Petri dish inks and Petri dishes. You know, macro photography. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, but my first impression was, you know, I couldn't help but feel this like this Blade Runner feel because of mm-hmm. your city and the music too. And so I was just curious. I know that you guys were definitely paying homage to everything that came before, but I was also wondering how much of that just kind of, when you're, when you're in a certain style, that these things just naturally kind of arise. I think it's both, man. I mean, I really do. And I think that, I, I think that, Unfortunately, I think for a lot of people that's gotten in the way. I don't think that thematically or or even just in terms of the storytelling or even the characters that it's anything like Blade Runner. I think that it's all very and there's a very and there and to me there's very striking differences between um Ridley Scott's masterpiece and um our movie and even just in terms of the world that we created, but there are both conscious and subconscious uh I you know, I I listen to Vangelis pretty exclusively. I mean, I, I just, I love listening to Vangelis' music. And of course, one of his most famous pieces is the score for that movie. Um, but I, you know, a lot of what I used to inspire me is not necessarily from that movie, but has that same vibe. And I, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons for the intention of, of it wasn't so I could say, here is a reference to Blade Runner. It was, it was more that I want to, I, I want to watch, I wanted to make a movie that I wanted to watch, which is a science fiction movie that you could, you know, crawl, you know, you feel like you wanted to hang out inside that world. Um, and there was a, a distinct dystopian sort of cyberpunk vibe to the whole thing that, you know, so there are sort of intentional things and then subconscious things. And of course, since it was a noir movie and it was a science fiction movie, um, since I wanted to do that, not necessarily, you know, simultaneous with being inspired by Blade Runner, that I, that those things kind of come through. It just seems like it makes sense, you know. So I mean, the noir, actual noir movies are actually a much bigger inspiration than 
than even than even Blade Runner um, and other science fiction movies. I mean, of course, that movie's amazing. So I, you know, I, I I always take it as a compliment, but I hope that people it won't distract from, you know, the unique take on that sort of style that it has to offer. Um, but uh, it doesn't. I just got back from Japan, man, and I and I can't I can't imagine, you know, being at night in in Osaka and looking out the window and not conjuring images that are somewhat like Blade Runner and whether it's a Ouroboros of, of inspiration or not, I have no idea. (laughs) Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. No, thank you so much for having me on your show. You bet. You've been listening to Jacob Gentry on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Be sure and check out his film Synchronicity, which you can find right now on Netflix. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com membership. Thanks so much, and though time is a great teacher, it eventually kills all of its students. Hi.